Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. This is all about trust now and personal responsibility and just being careful and not being selfish. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The idea of an irreversible move was taken off the table. You can't do that when you have no idea where the virus is going to go. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Now, the echoes of Afghanistan continue to reverberate through UK politics. The government is holding talks with the Taliban to ensure Britons can safely leave Afghanistan. Simon Gass, the special representative for Afghan transition, has met senior members of the group in Qatar. Meanwhile, the US President Joe Biden defended the evacuation of his troops from Afghanistan, saying that the mission was an extraordinary success. He's been heavily criticised for his handling of the airlift, which saw more than 120,000 people flown out of Kabul. Meanwhile, the Taliban and other Afghan leaders have reached a consensus on the formation of a new government and cabinet to be announced in the next few days, according to an official. Well, joining us now on the programme is Stephen Flynn, who's SNP MP for Aberdeen South. Stephen, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, welcome to the programme. I mean, a lot has been said, of course, about the government's handling of Afghanistan. But the fact that the government has now confirmed that Afghans who work for the UK military and government can remain permanently here in Britain, that is the right decision, do you think? Absolutely, it's the right decision. It's progress, at least. Uh, but it doesn't, by any accounts, uh, cover up the, the magnitude of the failure to date, and it doesn't indeed go far enough. You know, we've been clear with the, the government for a number of weeks now that the refugee scheme that they needed to operate was was one uh, where numbers would be far in excess of the number of people who came here. And if we look, for instance, at the numbers as they stand, so it's around 3,000 refugees who came in on the Afghan relocation and assistance policy. Yet we know that the UK employed some 7,000 Afghan interpreters and translators alone. So the UK had to do more. It's not quite done that yet. And whilst this is progress, it can't escape from the the failures to date. Mm, Well, um, those people actually leaving now, of course, is a big question. And also the resettlement programme. If Britain were to take many thousands more, uh, as they have done several thousand so far, where would those Afghans settle? How far is Scotland prepared to help with this uh, in terms of, of bringing um, Afghans to, to the UK? Well, I think we've been, been clear, the Scottish Government's been clear, but also the Convention of Scottish Local Authorities in Scotland has been clear that we're willing to play a part and to play a leading role, as we did with the, the Syrian refugee programme, in which Scotland took more of a percentage share than, of course, our population would, would identify with in the UK. So we're willing to play our part. We'll stand ready to, to do so. But what we need is for the UK Government to to get at it and to ensure that refugees who want to or can reach, indeed, because that's going to be the difficult part, who can reach the UK are given the support that they, they require when they get here. And I do worry about the overall intent of the government in this regard. You know, we've seen the Nationalities and, and Borders Bill approved by Parliament just recently, which sought to criminalise 
asylum seekers. So whilst they're talking very positive in, in certain terms, the reality is very different when it comes to the legislation that they've moved. But what about the situation in, on the ground? I mean, for example, where you are in Aberdeen, would Aberdeen Council be willing and able to set up resettlement programmes? Do they have the money to do it? Yeah, uh, the money, of course, is, is, a, is a separate element. That would, of course, uh, require the UK government to, 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 to give us some. But the reality is that, yes, uh, Aberdeen City Council, Aberdeenshire Council, our neighbouring authority, uh, are willing and ready and prepared to help, as we did with the Syrian refugee scheme. Indeed, I think I've seen on social media just yesterday that some Afghan nationals have indeed already reached Aberdeenshire, which is, is really, really positive news. And we, as I say, we, we stand ready to, to play our part. And I think we all have a moral obligation to do so. The, the reality is that the situation that we find ourselves in in Afghanistan is one of our own making, and we have a moral obligation to these people to ensure that they have safe passage and that they have positive futures. Um, we've just heard this morning about um, this: uh, the Taliban and Afghan leaders reaching an agreement in terms of forming a new a, a new government that would be under the leadership of the group's top spiritual leader. How far, to what extent, should the Johnson government be speaking to the Taliban, be engaging with this new government as we await to hear in the coming few days? You know who's going to be in this cabinet. I don't think. The government at this moment in time has much choice. They, they've allowed this situation to occur where the Taliban are now back in control. And they need to ensure that the humanitarian crisis that will unfold in Afghanistan, if it hasn't already started to unfold in, in great numbers, is, is addressed. And the only way that we can address that is to engage proactively with the Taliban and to ensure that we provide the international aid that, that we can to support people who are still there. But there's also the security aspect in relation to this as well, because the last thing that anyone wants to see is a situation where Afghanistan reverts to what it was pre-invasion by, by US and UK and allied forces some 20 years ago, where terrorist groups were able to, to get hold. Nobody wants to see that happen. So we have to be very conscious of the humanitarian crisis, whilst also focusing on ensuring that our own security is protected going forward. Now, Stephen, let's move on to uh, the other, obviously, big, big subject in uh, every MP's uh, concerns list at the moment, which is the uh, number of cases, number of virus cases, the potential surge coming for various reasons, many of it from young people, whether they're going to rock festivals or going back to school. Now, of course, here in England and Wales, it's going back to school week in Scotland. Uh, the kids have already been back at school for some while. How has it worked out? Have cases gone up? What's been the impact? Oh yeah, you're, you're right. Schools have been back for for a couple of weeks now in Scotland. My own wife's a, a teacher, so I I, I hear uh, nightly about the situation within within schools, and and I think it broadly reflects the the situation in wider society, and certainly the numbers would reflect that in terms of case numbers. We know that uh, pupils are indeed uh, contracting COVID, and many more are, are of course having to to isolate as a consequence, and that is a, an extremely difficult situation to deal with. But it, it also strengthens the arguments as to why in Scotland the government continued with the policy of mask wearing for, for pupils and staff within schools and why there remains an element of social distancing between staff and pupils themselves. That's obviously in stark contrast to what I believe is planned uh, in England. Uh, and I don't necessarily think that well, what is planned in England is going to unfold in, in the best possible manner. And I know that unions uh, are certainly quite strong in, in calling for the UK government to match the, the mitigations that Scotland has put in place. 
But but even with those additional measures, I mean, virus cases have gone up to what some seven thousand a day since the start of August in Scotland, um, when average cases were less than a thousand. So you know, it was a big ramp up in the weeks in August since all of the virus restrictions in Scotland were lifted. So um, it, it seems unavoidable that that cases are going to mount. I think we're all cognizant of the fact that, that case numbers have increased, and we all. To a certain extent, a certain extent, expected them to, to increase given the the removal of, of restrictions and the freedoms that we now enjoy, particularly not having to to social distance and the like. And what we need to be clear on is what impact that's having upon our health service, and that is obviously going to be something which is more evident in the weeks to come, given the, the numbers that, that you're quoting there. I've certainly been engaging heavily with my my own health board here in Aberdeen, that's NHS Grampian. I was on a briefing with them just, just a couple of days ago and they're in the situation here in the city. And, and there is obviously a number of permutations, but everyone is cognizant of the fact that there is more cases. But we also have to be aware of the fact that we have an incredibly successful vaccination programme and hopefully that will allow us to continue with the freedoms that, that, that we have at this moment in time without having to, to take, a, take a step back. But all that needs to be based on the pressure that's, that's being placed on health boards because we don't want to be in a situation where our NHS is overwhelmed. Stephen, let me move you on to a very interesting experiment, really, which the SNP is, is undertaking at the moment, which is bringing the Green Party into government as, as part of a deal, not quite a coalition, but something along those lines. Now, here on Bloomberg Westminster, we spoke to the Deputy Green Leader, in fact, last week. Um, do you welcome... Uh, them joining the SNP in government? I mean, I'm sure you've seen the headline from an article by Andrew Neil, your fellow Scot, saying what price will Scotland pay for giving power to eco-zealot Marxists? Yeah, I think uh, Andrew Neil's perhaps uh, showing is, is uh, showing that he's a little bit of a dinosaur in, in that regard. As Scotland looks to the future, Andrew Neil's stuck in the in the past uh, somewhat. I'm, I'm delighted to see the cooperation agreement pass. You know, politics can be an extremely tribal place. Andrew Neil's given a perfect example of that, given the inflammatory language he's, he's used. But this agreement breaks that mould and it allows us to, to focus on the, the key priorities facing Scotland going forward, because this is a, a difficult and important time. We need to be able to, to deal with the COVID recovery. We need to combat climate change. And of course, we need to have the right to, to choose our own future, because that's what the people of Scotland voted for in the Scottish Parliament elections in May. And it's vital now more than ever that Scotland's interests are put into the hands of the Scottish people rather than Boris Johnson's hands. Mm. Can What can Scotland do um, to further that green agenda then um, as the UK as a whole tries to you know, make radical change in the face of climate change? Yeah, well, the cooperation agreement provides a, a, a real steer in terms of, of what's to come. There's, there's going to be increased investment in the likes of active travel and, and public transport there's going to be a designation for a new national park, which I think is, is very important. But perhaps the biggest thing, and particularly for myself being in the North East, is the, the creation of a £500 million just transition fund, which will allow us to, to explore, hopefully, the, the benefits that, that Scotland can reap from renewable technologies. You know, Scotland has 25% of Europe's offshore wind capacity, and I'm certainly hoping that this funding, which has been agreed between the, the SNP and the Greens, will allow us to, to capitalise upon that. But of course, whilst I say that, I am very conscious of the fact that we are going into that environment with one hand tied, tied behind our back because one of the biggest challenges facing new renewables projects within Scotland, one of the, the biggest barriers to us reaching 
uh, net zero is the fact that transmission charges from new projects to the, the national grid in Scotland are the highest in, in Europe, whereas projects in the southeast of England get paid to connect to the grid. Pro new renewables projects in Scotland have to pay yeah. to connect to the grid. So the UK government needs to resolve these issues right. and hopefully work in tandem with the Scottish government to deliver a greener future for, for all of us. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's talk about other political stories, what's happening out there. And the Work and Pensions Secretary has resisted calls from politicians in each of the four UK nations to halt the plan cut to universal credit. Therese Coffey said it was right to focus on supporting people back into work now the economy was getting back on track. The £20 a week increase introduced as a temporary measure during the pandemic is due to be phased out from late September. Cross-party committees from Westminster, Northern Ireland Assembly, the Welsh Senate and the Scottish Parliament have called on the government to make the higher rate of payment permanent. Meanwhile, a cleaner form of petrol is being introduced at filling stations across Britain from today. E10 petrol, which is made up of up to 10% bioethanol, a type of renewable fuel, will be the standard offering now at Fourcourts as part of the government's plan to cut carbon emissions and it will be replacing E5 petrol. The Department for Transport says that more than 95% of petrol cars licensed for use in the UK are compatible with E10. The RAC, Roger, saying that uh, more than one in Ford drivers have not even checked if their car is compatible. Well, at the same time, Shell is expanding its network of electric vehicle chargers in the UK to drivers who don't have private parking. The oil giant's Ubitricity unit will install 50,000 on-street charging posts by 2025. In addition to the 3,600 existing charging points, the government will finance 75% of the installation costs. The UK's banned the sale of new petrol and diesel cars from 2030, which will require a swift build-up of the charging network. And just lastly, when it comes to the pandemic in Ireland, most coronavirus restrictions are going to be eased by the end of October, with almost 90% of the adult population now vaccinated. The Prime Minister confirmed a staggered change to the rules from Monday. So indoor venues will be allowed to use up to 60% of their capacity when holding events for fully vaccinated people and workers will also start returning to offices in Ireland. Now, Boris's bad summer has been one headline in the weekend press. There's a sense that Boris Johnson and his government have been firefighting a series of terrible headlines for most of the last few months, and the Afghan debacle was perhaps only the worst of a horrible season. 
And Kabul, of course, also robbed him of his summer holiday. Now, the polls are suggesting as normal politics begins to resume, the Tories have lost their edge and the man who leads them may be beginning to lose his added value for them. Joining us now is Tim Bale, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London and Deputy Director of the UK in a Changing Europe. Tim, thanks very much for being with us. How bad do you think things are for Boris Johnson's government? Well, um, for the government as a whole, uh, you can perhaps exaggerate the extent to which they're in trouble, at least at the moment. Um, they seem to be retaining their lead over Labour, albeit, you know, dropped slightly. And still, the average is around a 7% lead over Labour. So I don't think Tory MPs are going to be panicking just yet. Um, Boris Johnson's ratings, however, have um, since really the middle of June um, turned negative. Uh, once again. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, I guess, is an indication that perhaps, as you suggested, he's not quite the asset for him, uh, for them, that, that he was before. At the moment, his approval rating is something like 44% of people approve and 56% uh, of people disapprove of the job he's doing. So um, he's in some trouble, but it's certainly not terminal yet, I think. No, I mean, it seems more perhaps a moment for actually intrigue, doesn't it? Um, because there have been quite a number of backbench rebellions. Uh, you've got cabinet ministers under various pressure now mm. from a lot of these poor headlines. I mean, how loyal is the cabinet and backbenchers to, to Johnson? I think that's a really good question. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I'm doing some research now on the 2019 leadership contest, and it's it's pretty clear then that, you know, the, the support for Boris Johnson was always someone who could get them out of the hole that they dug themselves into. You know, he was the man who could um, uh, you know, see off Nigel Farage and Jeremy Corbyn and hopefully get them through, you know, an election which they believed was coming. So I think support for him has always been rather more you know, transactional, if you like, than an ideological or even, you know, down to personal loyalty, um, to be honest. So if things do begin to go badly wrong for him, then I think he will be in trouble in, in that respect. And I suppose one of the indicators of that, it was certainly very striking to me, is when we had the emergency debate on Afghanistan, there wasn't one supporting speech from, from his backbenchers. There just wasn't anything there at all. And that was pretty striking, wasn't it? It was. And I mean, his performance in the Commons was, was pretty poor in itself, as was the performance, some people would say, of, uh, of, of Dominic Raab in, in that debate. Uh, it, it was very striking, as you say, that, that no one had a good word really to say for um, you know, the, the, the conduct of the operation. Um, I mean, there was some blaming of the Biden administration, and we've seen more of that in off-the-record briefings uh, as well. Um, but clearly, um, people weren't impressed by the way that the, the government has handled this. There's been more support for the, the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, I think, than there has been for um, Boris Johnson and, and for Dominic Raab. Um, and one would have thought, however difficult the situation, clearly it was a very difficult situation, and clearly, you know, the, the whole operation was a mess um, towards the end anyway. Um, one would have thought there would be a few supportive voices, but there were very, very few indeed, you're right. Um, now, I guess one could say, well, that is an exceptional case. It was it was so chaotic, so unexpected, uh, and the government's uh, you know, performance was perhaps you know, so poor that, that it's understandable that not many people got up on their feet to, to support the prime minister. Um, however, I think, you know, normally when a prime minister who's popular within his party has his back to the wall for whatever reason, you will find at least a few loyalist voices. But as you say, um, you know, they were absent.
Mm, yeah, uh, and uh, and of course the foreign secretary will uh, come under pressure with uh, MPs grilling him also today. Mm. Um, let's also talk about though um, the other big kind of thorn that may be returning for the government, which is Brexit. We've got uh, shop shortages, um, a significant shortage of HGV drivers. I mean, this is something that could hit the public in a real way because some shelves are empty and there are warnings that that could become more widespread. Yeah, I mean, I think we haven't really seen um, much evidence uh, so far anyway since we left the European Union of a kind of tangible impact that can be put down to Brexit. I think the government will do its best um, to argue that any shortages are to some extent due to, you know, the, the pandemic, as it, as it called it before, though it's running out of that excuse now, uh, and also just uh, general global um, supply problems. But I think it will be pretty obvious to many, particularly when it comes to the shortage of HGV drivers that you've talked about, that actually Brexit has had an impact on, on this. Uh, and certainly, although I don't think people are panicking about shortages in the shops at the moment, presumably they will eventually have uh, an impact on prices in the shops. Uh, and you know that is something that people are going to notice. I think what we will then see is this sort of battle for the narrative, really, with the government trying to suggest that it's got nothing whatsoever to do with Brexit. Um, obviously, people who didn't want to leave the European Union blame it all on, on Brexit. Uh, and it's a case of, you know, who's who's going to win that, that battle of the, of the narrative. I think a lot will depend also on, on how well the economy does or doesn't recover. Uh, I think if, you know, the, the economy recovers as strongly as some people hope it will, then I think the government can probably ride out those shortage problems and, and, and hopefully those supply bottlenecks will, will gradually ease. I think if... You know, as people come off furlough, as government withdraws support to businesses, uh, the economy doesn't fire up in the way that certainly it is going to be hoping that it does. Then, then I think, you know, against that context, um, people will begin to, to be concerned about some of the problems we talked about and perhaps put the blame on Brexit. Yeah, I mean, we're in an interesting moment. I mean, if you were circling dates in the diary, I could see quite a few difficult ones coming up for the government. I mean, there's mm. the end of the grace period uh, with the EU over Brexit in October. You've obviously got the end of furlough. You've got, uh, I suppose, the moment where uh, a lot of the universal credit uh, uplift ends as well, and people will begin to feel the pain of, of that. Northern Ireland hasn't gone away in terms of the Brexit issue still. I mean, it's going to be a difficult autumn, isn't it? I think it is going to be quite a hot autumn for the government. Uh, clearly, you know, there are uh, the problems in Northern Ireland um, you know, about to recur because it doesn't look as if either the EU or um, the British government has changed its position on that. Um, if, uh, as we've talked about, prices rise in the shops uh, on essentials, then that um, refusal to uplift or continue the uplift of, uh, of universal credit is going to hit some people very, very hard. And it's going to make it, I think, quite hard for the government to argue that it is a one nation government, that it is levelling up. Um, and also, of course, we've got the um, multi-year spending review coming up, what effectively probably will be a budget, actually, at the end of October. Um, and that is shaping up to you know, be a bit of a row between supposedly a prime minister who you know wants to spend more and a chancellor uh, who is very worried about the deficit and the debt so we could see a, a kind of crunch in the relationship between rishi sunak and boris johnson and we've seen throughout the summer a little bit of tension between those two men yeah interesting uh, the neighbors often a tricky relationship just lastly on keir starmer though 
what um, possibility, what chances that he actually m- may do a little bit better going into the autumn? Any chances of that? Well, he's certainly got a hope he, he is going to do a little bit better because it, it's very clear that, you know, his numbers aren't particularly impressive either. Now, mm. the, the only upside for Keir Starmer is if you dig in a little bit deeper into the data, there's still an awful lot of people who, you know, don't really know very much about him, haven't necessarily made up their minds about him and, and are still persuadable. And I think, you know, it, it has been an unusual time to take over the opposition with the with the pandemic. Um, so as politics begins to return to normal, and of course, we're all presuming that it will return to normal, we're all hoping that there won't be, you know, some other wave of, of the pandemic, then perhaps he will have more of a chance to actually you know, increase his visibility. And, and perhaps the Labour conference is a is a, a start to that, but it, it certainly can't be the end of that process. It's going to be a very, very long haul, I think, for Keir Starmer. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.